Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. What is up, Gypsy gang? We are back for another episode of the Gypsy Tales podcast and super excited to bring you all this one. It is with the man himself, Ryan Walkinshaw. I actually had never met Ryan before this podcast, but he is a certified lord in the eyes of my brother, uh, Sam Moore, Adam Bailey, pretty much everyone that I... uh, no love and respect thinks that Ryan Walkinshaw is basically the G of all G's. Uh, he runs uh, Walkinshaw Group, essentially, and uh, that consists of the Walkinshaw Automotive Group, the Holden Special Vehicles, New Age Caravans, and Walkinshaw and Dreddy United. Uh, so he's got a wealth of experience in not only racing, but just general business and big business. So to get to sit down and talk for a couple of hours with uh, a guy like Ryan was a real pleasure. Uh, We didn't get to have the full three hours um, just due to Ryan's schedule. So I didn't want to kind of just go into the, his backstory um, and, you know, that side of things. Cause I just, I guess we just probably wouldn't have time and that story's probably been told before. So uh, I just wanted to sit down and uh, pick Ryan's brain on what he kind of thinks about in his spare time. Uh, And man, it was a really, really good combo. These are the kind of podcasts I really enjoy doing. So thank you so much to Ryan. Thanks to Sammy for helping make this one happen. Uh, I hope you guys enjoy it because I definitely did. I just need to give you some messages from our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by the guys at boost mobile you can head to boost.com.au and you can check out their incredible prepaid plans they're on the full 4g lte telstra network and like i've been with these guys for pretty much two years now and i have their big dog Pro, uh, prepaid plan just last me the whole year. Uh, all the info for that is on boost.com.au. Uh, we're also brought to you by the brand new Dirt 5 game. And man, this game is insane. Uh, it is 
I don't want to say it's like not a serious racing game. It is a serious racing game, but it's got that real fun arcade uh, style to it. I'm a big fan of F1 2020. Uh, I love to really get in and uh, and play some serious career modes, but this Dirt 5 just has a different vibe. There's so many different cars, so many different tracks. You can race all around the world, and I really have enjoyed playing Dirt 5 uh, these last couple of weeks in my downtime. We're also brought to you by the guys at Dry Times. Summer is here in a massive way. I've been doing what I can to spend a tiny little bit more time at the beach. Uh, dry Times has come in super handy for that. Uh, it doesn't collect sand. That is probably the best beach feature of these towels, uh, other than just getting you dry, I guess. Uh, that's kind of always a good quality to have in a towel. Uh, their gym towels are insane as well. We've been having some sweaty morning sessions at combat. Uh, I'm back into jiu-jitsu. Praise the Lord. And uh, the Dry Times gym towels have been coming in super handy. They are super necessary. You can head to drytimes.com, use the code GYPSYGANG, and you're going to get 15% off. You can also use the code GYPSYGANG at fisthandwear.com and dixonquality.com.au. And you like Jace, mate. It's summer. I'm not buying a flannel. Go and check out their board shorts. Uh, Dixon don't just do flannels. They do some incredible stuff uh, that will get you through summer as well. New stuff in the Fist Warehouse. Uh, so don't forget to check that out. We're also brought to you by the guys at MX Store. And as I record this ad, it is 1.55 p.m., that means that if you go to mxstore.com.au, you have five minutes to get your order in before you get same-day shipping on your order. Uh, or if you're like me and you live in Burley, you can just roll on in to their brand new showroom. It has so much on the floor uh, if you need to try and pretty much any helmet, any boot, uh, any set of gear, any set of knee braces, any set of protection, the guys at MX Store have you covered. I'll have to ask the boys, but I'm pretty sure I'm not allowed to enter the Rival Inc. 100K Instagram giveaway. But just because I can't enter doesn't mean you can't enter. So head to Rival Inc designco.com to enter the draw to win a brand new CRF 110 and while you're at it pick yourself up a set of fresh graphics for that new 2021 whip or if you're not getting a new 2021 bike uh, then maybe you need to freshen up that current kit that you've got uh, they have the sickest catalog of graphics so roll on through rivalinkdesignco.com and uh, freshen up that new whip for 2021, you know. Uh, and we are also brought to you by the guys at Crick's Tweed. If you are in the market for a new car in 2021, look no further than the guys at Crick's Tweed. You can head to crickstweed.com.au. Call Kyle and organize your test drive. Thank you very much to everybody for listening. Uh, it hasn't happened exactly just yet. We're, we're still a few thousand downloads away, uh, but this is going to be our biggest month ever on iTunes. It is, uh, it's probably our biggest month on youtube as well um so yeah just a massive 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 thank you to the entire gypsy gang i absolutely love my job i love getting to have these amazing conversations and share them with you guys and i love that uh you guys seem to enjoy them so thank you so much to everybody that lets me uh 
do the job that I do. I'm super thankful. I'm super grateful for all of you. And uh, that's enough of me. Enjoy Ryan Walkinshaw. The guy is a dead set legend. If you want to do the headphone thing. Um, yo, yo, yo. Is your, you got enough volume? I think so. Sounds pretty good. Oh, my voice sounds very good in this. It does, isn't it? deep and sexy. Yeah, like. it's like I've been What's that? What smoking cigars Sexified, and drinking whiskey yeah. for a long time. <laughs> Welcome to the Smoker's Lounge with so, Ryan yeah. Walkinshaw. Um, and then pull this up close too. You'll hear the difference in that thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, very good. Very good. So uh, Ryan Walkinshaw joins us on the podcast. Uh, my management, Sam Moore, has once again come through with the goods. And uh, I know you don't have the full three hours that we normally do for Gypsy Tales. So... I just figured I'd ask in your downtime when you're not thinking about the multiple businesses that you run and all the shit that I'm sure you do from day to day, <laughs> where does your mind wander off to? What, what's on your mind these days, Ryan? What's on my mind these days? Mm. That's a pretty weird question to ask someone in 2020, isn't it? Mm. Um, yeah, I figure there's some different stuff going <laughs> yeah. on, you know what I mean? I mean, to be honest, I'm not at work. Um, I spend most of my time trying to hang out with friends and, uh, and, and my partner, Hayley, because I travel so much with work. Um, obviously not this year because this year I've not been able to travel so I've kind of been stuck in Australia but genuinely I travel a lot so I try and spend most of my free time trying to catch up with people um, who I haven't seen in a long period of time you know don't get to see my, my friends back in Europe very often and um, when I'm in Australia um, I'm normally catching up with friends from Australia who have not seen while I've been in Europe so um, you know I guess my mind sort of wanders to to you know who I can hang out with and you know going out for dinners and things like that but um if you're talking more like introspectively, what yeah. one wonders to, um, I don't know, some pretty weird shit sometimes. Um, <laughs> it's the stuff I like. <laughs> <laughs> Just trying to think what might be under R-rated. Um, no, this show is R-rated. Too, this, yeah, I know, I know. I've seen, I've seen a few episodes. I've seen Sammy going full sledge. It's terrifying. Um, yeah, I guess just normal sort of stuff, really. Um has I mean, this year thrown anything weird at you that you've like spent time thinking about that you've never really thought about before this? Um, well, yeah, quite a lot of stuff because obviously it's been such a crazy year, and particularly for um, someone who's a who runs a, a couple of businesses and internationally yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's uh, you end up thinking a lot about um, sort of strategizing what you're going to do going forward because, especially mm. with so many uncertainties, um, you know, there's been a fair bit of uh, reflection internally in uh, in the business and with the people in the business and so on as well. So that always comes into into play quite a lot in my mind because, especially when you have a situation like this year where there's only certain amount of things that are actually under your control, mm. um, and where fewer of those things that you're under that normally under your control um uh are not actually under your control anymore because there's different variables coming in like you know governments suddenly forcing you to shut down one of your businesses with two days notice and you know or uh, trying to manage staff uh, remotely um I mean, especially when you're a, a manufacturing business that can be quite uh, quite challenging on the race team side of things you know um trying to uh, be involved with the race team that's been on the road for you know 100 or so days away from their friends and family so kind of thinking about how you strategize that and how you try and keep your eyes forward because what you can get caught up in is um, when lots of things are going on around you and you feel a bit, uh, not helpless, that's the wrong word, but a little bit disjointed um, because things are happening which are outside of your, you know, your, your, the norm, so to, th so to speak. Um, you know, it's really easy to just start 
you know, thinking about tomorrow or next week. Whereas, you know, most successful business owners, I think would tell you that they're, you know, always looking out months in advance, years in advance. Um, but something like COVID comes in and it just smashes that straight out of the park. So, um, you know, it really forces you to reevaluate those things. So I think I spent a lot of time, you know, trying to just navigate some of the short term things without looking, without, without missing the, the, mm. the long term goals and objectives. Um, and one thing we looked at when COVID occurred, and obviously, you know, we had, we took it pretty seriously right from the bat, and and you know, we started cost saving immediately. We became pretty frugal in, in our spending um, because uh, at the time, we, you know, in February March, we didn't know if this was going to be a two month issue or a two year issue. It looks mm. more like it's going to be a two year issue. So um, we just went, you know, hell for leather on on full con- conservation mode, um, which has benefited us now, but. Uh, going through that process is is you know by by its very nature um forces you to reevaluate what you're doing because you know makes forces you into a position where you need to make tough calls forces you in a position where you need to you know look at uh personnel you have working for you you know who is potentially expendable who can the business survive without and so on if you're getting into desperate times because at the end of the day um you know the survival of the business is is, is pretty much paramount right yeah um and uh you know you're much as, as bad as it sounds, you're much better off having a couple of people uh, be removed from the business so that the other 200 people can still have a job going forward as opposed to keeping a couple of people on, on the payroll but putting everyone's jobs at risk. So, yeah. Um, yeah, going through a lot of that, that took a lot of uh, a lot of mental capacity out of my sort of daily thinking um, just because, you know, all those tough decisions are pretty hard, especially when you've got human beings and emotions and, yeah. you know, all that sort of stuff. They all That all, you know, adds a different emotional value on top of just the sort of, you know, intellectual, psychological value that we genuinely have when you're um, having these sort of thoughts. Yeah, because, I mean, they're like essentially... You know, when you hear people be like, oh, they're not just a number, but like on a spreadsheet, they are just a number. But then when you add in the personal relationships that you've got and you, there's all of the, um, you know, this extra stuff that sort of comes into play that you, you can't just rely on like the, you know, spreadsheet data because then it, it just becomes so ruthless, you know, like there is personalities involved. Yeah, there is. And, and you look at some of the big, large corporates. I mean, you know, a lot of the time there because, you know, they've got such large businesses and they are heavily corporatized. And, you know, in those situations, it's quite hard not to look at people. Mm. At least the majority of people is a number on a spreadsheet. Um, but, you know, my, my business, we're a family business. We've got 600 employees now, but we still see ourselves as a family business. And, um, you know, we still know most of the people who, who, who you know, work for us and and uh, particularly our, our key executive team, you know, who work with, you know, the whole time. There's no such thing as just a nine to five job anymore. You know, we're on the phone yeah. with these people every evening, you know, we're on weekends, we're spending time together and things like that. So it's, you know, there is an emotional value and, and, uh, and at the end of the day, an emotional cost to going through these sort of decisions as well, which, you know, just makes everything always a little bit more difficult. But um yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure I'm not alone in, in, in that kind of challenge yeah. this year. I'm sure that's a, a challenge that will resonate with, um, you know, any uh, small to medium-sized business that we've gone through the same sort of uh, turmoil, I'm sure. Yeah, it's crazy <clears throat> this year too, just the um, the way, like if you just said uh, this time 12 months ago, I mean, we were in New Zealand, like Sammy and I were in New Zealand riding together mm. and there was just, it, we just had unlimited freedom that is just, that's not the case now and Mm. for the world to be so drastically different in 12 months like i couldn't have like i couldn't have predicted that and if someone come and said to me 12 months ago 
um, and it even explained the situation, you'd probably still be like, nah, but surely you'd be able to do this, this and mm. this. And for the way that things have just come to like a grinding halt in 2020, like it, it's pretty incredible what I guess has been taken away and how quickly it could get taken away. Yeah, and um, yeah, because there's two sides of that, right? There's the, there's how it's impacted businesses and how businesses have had to uh, to to adapt to a, a pretty rapidly changing environment. And um, it's not just adapting once; it's been multiple tiers mm. of, of adaptation as things have progressed. We've understood more and more about the risk of the virus, the impact, and how it's going to have on the economy and on people and travel and on a whole bunch of different um, different areas. Um, but then there's also the personal toll, right? Because um, you know, we're not used to it. And whilst this was, and this is something I always tell a lot of people when I have these sort of discussions, when people, you know, say like, oh, you know, all our freedoms have been removed and this is, you know, un- unprecedented. It's, it's, it's actually not. These sort of things used to happen quite regularly, mm-hmm. um, not to the same sort of degree because, you know, we weren't a global customer as, as a planet as we are now. But yeah. um, but uh, locally, locally and, you know, microcosms of, of environments and communities and so on, um, you know, these sort of measures were relatively regular with a whole bunch of different viral outbreaks, you know, like tuberculosis is a prime example. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, that would shut off entire towns and villages and they would genuinely go through quarantine and all these sort of things. So um, I think this time it's the scale which has really surprised people yeah. and the fact that thanks to things like vaccines and, you know, infectious disease prevention and model, modern healthcare and so on, um, we haven't really had a big viral outbreak that's actually not being contained the last one that was a really severe one was probably ebola but yeah. that got contained pretty well because of the the the, the measures in um, in restricting uh, what was the one that was in brazil around the, the zika virus that yeah zika yeah i yeah. was living in the u.s at, at that time mm. and that that had initially a very similar feeling to covid there yeah. was so much like kind of uh at the start speculation and yeah. it just never really ramped up whereas this was we had so much speculation and then it just went from felt like zero to 100 pretty yeah and we had that with MERS as well and um, there was another Asian watch I've forgotten the name of the top of my head there was SARS yeah. And, yeah and um, and this is actually a SARS based coronavirus it's anyway. a similar you know, it's, type it's, of it's, thing yeah. Yeah, it's uh, SARS COV-2 um, is the actual name of the virus the, the illness that it creates is COVID um, and I think it's just because we've not had any of these big outbreaks for such a long period of, of time because of all the advancements in, in, in medical technology and treatments and so on. That I think it's just quite a big shock to everyone. And obviously, whenever there's a shock, you know, people try and come up with the, the path of least resistance to try and come up with an answer. And yeah. generally, those answers are actually the wrong ones because things are generally more complicated than, you know, what they initially appear to be. But um, yeah, uh, from a business perspective, you know, we've managed to, to navigate a lot of it relatively relatively well um there's still a lot more to go and i'm sure this isn't the end of it and there'll be more uh challenges ahead of us but um you know there's uh, i think the support from the australian government in particular has been really really good for for the most part for for businesses um and uh and for the people that work for them as well so you know it does kind of show that even when you have a really you know cataclysmic potential event that we've had with this pandemic you know that when we all sort of work together and when governments are you know generally supportive of their people um, you know, you can, you know, weather the storm and with a decent recovery plan, um, have a relatively low amount of, of you know, direct damage uh, right now, even though we're going to be paying for this damage for a long period of time. It's manageable. It's not catastrophic, um, which I think has been pretty good so far. And so the fact that 
you've got businesses in multiple countries like you're not just running a business in australia what's been the biggest challenge there just the fact that you haven't been able to travel um there's a bit of that but i mean one of the one of the ironic things is that because everyone's been working remotely at home everyone's been doing you know zoom calls and microsoft team calls anyway so actually you know what i end up doing with you know international work when i'm in australia has just sort of continued as, as as normal because um, you know, there's no other way that I'd be able to do it, even if I was there for for the most part, particularly in in, in some states in the US. So, um, and actually, then actually transferred over to you know the opposite, where in Australia, you know, I was uh, I've been forced to do uh, the same sort of treatment that you know would end up giving to anything that I would be doing internationally whilst I was here, because mm. you know everyone's been sat at home, everyone's working remotely, everyone who can work remotely is working remotely, and so. Um, you know, you just end up using the same platform for everything, which uh, is Zoom calls. <laughs> so same as everyone else has this year. So it's, it's not been that difficult to manage in that respect, um, primarily because the situation is just sort of consolidated into the same kind of behavior that you know we've all had to become accustomed to this year. Yeah, has it changed your perspective on um, the way that you worked before? Like, do you think that the way like pre-COVID was the most efficient way to work or was it essentially like momentum, you know, because I mean, for me, like I know I've spent the last 12 years just traveling and Mm. you get so accustomed to this life on the road and you're living out of suitcases and an international flight to people like us that have done so many, it's not a big deal. Mm. And you talk to the average person on the street, if they do one international flight a year, it's a big deal. They're spending two weeks yep. getting their stuff ready. <laughs> so, you know, when you're very regularly traveling, you get so accustomed to it. But now that I've been forced to stop, I'm, I'm like, man, this this whole traveling thing really does suck up a lot of time <laughs> and does. impacts your routine so heavily that now I've seen it as quite counterproductive. Obviously, there's stuff that you do need to travel for, but in retrospect, were you doing things the most efficient way? Um, no, absolutely not. And I think if anything that's come, anything that's good that's come out of this is, mm. is the fact that you realize how fat, lazy, and heavy um, not only the business was, but probably I was too. Um, <laughs> but... Um, you know, it's it's without doubt that we were, that this has shown it's forced companies to go and take drastic measures, mm. and um, at least I can only speak for my on, on my behalf. But um, you know, we've actually realised that you know, with a lot less people doing, um, not even working all the time in the office, we've actually become more efficient, and we've actually had you know some really really good um, financial results out of it all. And we're selling a lot of cars. We've had in our caravan business, we've had the best retail months that we've ever had on record since July, one month after another. So that's been really positive and. Um, you know, we spent this time sort of reconsolidating and, and re-strategizing what we want to do as bus- what we want to do as a business and where we want to go and doing more negotiations with new automotive customers and so on. And we just launched our new partnership with Volkswagen as an example, and the new one with um, GMSV, which is the transition over from Holden. Um, oh yeah. And so, um, in that respect, it's been really, really good. But and I remember a year ago when I was trying to tell my CEO that I wanted to try and remove two or three million dollars off of the overhead for the business, it was no fucking way. You never do that. Now yeah. this business will implode. There's no way we can do it. We need, we're already running lean. You know, there's, there's no way we're going to be able to you know take yeah. any more overhead out. And now you know we've done that and more this year and actually the business is running better so that's been a really good example of inefficiency um and it's uh 
sometimes you need a bit of kick in the ass to change behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and this has been one that's just been forced upon me and, and, and everyone else in the whole world pretty much. So, um, and I guess it's how you react to that, which is really important. But the second part of your question on the travel, um, uh, I really enjoy travel. Um, I also quite like it because when you're on a plane, um, you end up being able to actually switch off. Mm. And that used to be better before they ended up putting Wi-Fi on all the big international flights. Yeah. Now, you know, you're three hours into a flight and you're like, oh, I just check my phone. And then, oh, fuck, this email's come through. I'm going to go and do that. Then you look yeah. another one, then you look another one, then you're on WhatsApp, then you're on, you know, wasting time with a whole bunch of, you know, other stuff on your phone, which, you know, actually has got almost zero value when you yeah. actually think about it. Um, and so uh, that kind of has been changing over the last few years anyway to make me, what well, I used to enjoy flying because I used to read books on you know science and things like that to actually end up you know doing the same crap you do when you're sat on your sofa and just strolling through instagram and things yeah just and getting the stroll hole but 30 yeah feet. it's so stupid but um <laughs> but uh you're right when it's when you say that you, you know i used to go and sometimes fly to the u.s for one meeting so you think about the entire the time that it takes to go to the airport get on a flight for you know 14 16 hours to la then get another flight to detroit for another bunch of hours and then get off get to your hotel get changed go and have a two, three hour a meeting. tired ass meeting. Yeah, exactly. And a meeting when you're actually doing a bit of a shit job because you're tired, you're jet lagged. Um, if you've been in business, you're probably a little bit hungover. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's just, it's actually a really crap, inefficient use of your time. Yeah. And I think what one benefit out of this for businesses is that, you know, the amount of money we used to spend on air travel every single year to go and have these sort of meetings was enormous. It was hundreds of thousands of dollars a year um, where we've actually managed to do just as good a job without anyone leaving the country for the last year. So it shows it can be done and it can be done really efficiently and effectively. And um, to be honest, I think you actually spoke to some of our engineers who do these trips even more regularly than I do often to the US to go and see, you know, some of our partners like GM and and so on over there. Um, you know, they actually probably get a better job done now because there's, you know, you don't have the opportunity to to just go and fly. So you've got to do the yeah. extra work here to ensure that it happens. Um, and I think you get the same kind of respect and approach from the other side as well. Whereas, you know, sometimes the other side of the, the business equation, they'll be sitting there saying, oh, you know, these guys could just come and fly over and come see us and we can just nut this out. Whereas when you can't do that, it's like, oh shit, we're actually gonna have to sit down and nut it out over a Zoom call. And then everyone actually realizes it's exactly the same. So I think that'll actually be a benefit for a lot of businesses going forward if they approach it the right way. Yeah, it's funny, like on the the one aspect, um, like I said before, we've essentially, and when I say like we've lost a lot of freedom, I don't mean that in uh, like an anti-government, (laughs) anti-regulation sort of way, but in terms of just like, what I can actually do right now. Can I book a flight? No, mm. I'm not free to do that. So there is a lot of, you know, just things that we took for granted that, that we, yeah. um, that we can't do anymore. <clears throat> but you look now like to talk about your caravan, the caravan business. Mm. There's so many people like we went to the Wit Sundays. The Wit Sundays is now exploding. Cairns has had terrible years yep. of tourism. Like that's where we grew up. Mm-hmm. And that's a town that is completely built on tourism. Yeah. And that's had a resurgence. So, it seems like in, in, in such a short period of time, like so much has been taken away, but then so much has then just been uh, regenerated, I guess, because people still have these same urges mm. to travel. People still have the same desires to go on holidays. And there's still these, I guess, the same base level um, 
pull that people have to go and do whatever it is. Mm. But now it's just like everyone's just figured like a little skirt around to do it. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if, if people want to do something, you're not going to stop them from doing it. You know, it's it's it, that goes from, you know, circumventing things for COVID and trying to find different solutions to restrictions and things like that. So, um, but, you know, at the same time, whenever there's crisis, there's also opportunity. Right. Mm. And, um, you know, the companies that. Uh, and the people that look to try and find opportunity in, in all this chaos, um, you know, they'll end up uh, being the ones that come out of it a lot stronger than, than a lot of other people. And tourism in Australia naturally seems to like it's going to explode. I'm already mm. at the front end of that, seeing that with our caravan sales. And you know, our order book is pretty much full now until May, which is the best, you know, order book uh, strength that we've had in uh, probably ever. Um, and that's not just us, that's, you know, a lot of our competitors as well. But that's a demonstration, you know, it's a little, you know, litmus test on how you can see the, yeah. the appetite for the Australian consumer in, in, in that industry. Um, and it's really, really strong. And, you know, if international travel does continue to be uh, uh, to be restricted over the next sort of 12 to 18 months, um, you know, even if that's restrictions just based on vaccines and vaccine rollouts are going to take at least a year anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so even with vaccines coming in, it doesn't instantly mean everyone's suddenly going to be able to travel even if they have a vaccine because just getting them is going to be difficult. Yeah. Um, and so Australia's in this weird little sort of bubble because it's a giant island in the middle of an ocean. So it has the opportunity to be able to uh, internally manage itself really, really well. And there's some industries that naturally are going to explode because customers can't, consumers, they can't go to Bali anymore. They can't go to New Zealand necessarily at the moment. They can't go to the US on the holidays or Thailand or, you know, Japan or whatever it is. Um, they're going to be much more restricted and they're going to want to go and take opportunity in their own country. Now, that's actually a great opportunity for trying to keep, um, you know, the economy for tourism and travel in Australia and pull it away from, you know, their competitors. Yeah. And so you've got all these people that they're still going to want to go on holiday. People are still working. That money, and, st- and that money was stays going here. to get spent in a different economy, essentially. Yeah. It's now we're going to stay here. Um, and that's huge. And mm. that's huge for all the hotels, for all the pubs, restaurants, shops, um, all these little rural villages and towns and, you know, um, see coastal, coastal towns and all that sort of thing. You know, they're going to see a real boom that they've probably not had for decades and decades, at least since, you know, cheap international travel was was mm. something that was, um, you know, readily available to, to most people. So, um, you know, again, you've had this, you know, catastrophic, horrible year, but, you know, you might see five years of some of the best, you know, tourism economy that Australia's had in, in decades. So, um, you know, for those who want to try and grasp it and are in the right place at the right time, there's really, really good opportunity. It just requires people to go and, and take it. Yeah. And so with the, the, um, just international travel or just plain uh, like aviation in mm-hmm. general to me in my head I, I struggle to think that these kind of travel bans could last just purely for the fact that I guess underlying the tourism side of aviation there's a just a, a global trade kind of aspect to it that seems like I don't know in my head I'm thinking like the longer this doesn't we, we're not allowed to mm. fly. What's the what's the backstage impact on? I guess like the the more um, base level of that industry because you got to think that if planes aren't flying, that's going to affect like Boeing's parts. Mm-hmm. You know, like parts production and servicing and any engine that just doesn't get run. You've got rubber seals that are going to start to you know dry out. That it just seems like if it doesn't get back going just there's some you know real fundamental things that will 
I guess, require an industry to keep going. And if they're not happening, it sort of seems like there's going to be all these little undercover things that might be what actually fucks that industry, not just the fact that there's no tourism, you know? Yeah, it's an interesting point. I mean, there's an argument for saying the... the the airline industry was pretty bloated anyway. Mm. I mean, did we really did we really need to have the hundred or so airlines that currently exist around the world? Probably mm. not. Could we do it with a more efficient, uh, more efficiently with you know ten or fifteen? You probably could. And so it doesn't really seem like it's had the same kind of consolidation as a lot of other industries have had. Um, so maybe this there's is, just planes that are just in Alice Springs, right? Because yeah. they didn't want to keep any of them by the coast because of the salt. Mm-hmm. So there's just like hundreds so of these planes there. And it's just the like, yeah. what, how does this work? Like, this yeah. seems like a huge problem. Yeah. And, you know, there's so much uh, that is reliant on planes mm-hmm. moving in the air that's just goes far beyond just general tourism yeah no there is absolutely but i mean it doesn't seem it doesn't seem like it's impacted global trade too much um i mean most global trade happens on 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 ships, ships anyway yeah. so it doesn't seem to be doing too much interference on there and from what i understand a lot of the haulage planes for air freight are still operating um regularly i mean we've had parts and and stuff from the US for a lot of our engineering, uh, a lot of our engineering development work. Um, you know, unfortunately, as much as I hate to say it, sometimes you know things get slowed down, and you know having to air freight instead of ship uh, in order to uh, meet your deadlines. And they seem to, we haven't had too many issues with that. Um, the tourism and the and the actual retail side of it is obviously something which is dramatically different. And um, again, I guess the principles of economics are always going to play into it, right? There's going to be a supply and demand. There's going to be a um, a, uh, a reset to some degree on how airlines operate. Um, you're probably not going to have a lot of these planes that are half full flying around just yeah. for the sake of it, because you know it's easier just to do lose a little bit of money on that flight than to um, you know to sweat the asset that you have than than to lose it. And um, you know, as I said previously, you know, some airlines will go bust, but at the same time, you know, it's uh, we might not it, have needed all of those. You, you probably didn't yeah. need them anyway. If anything, it's probably detracting away. You know, you'd rather have twenty businesses that are doing really really well looking after their customers really well and and uh, and doing a good job and ensuring that they're you know profitable enough to be able to do all the right safety standards buy new planes all the time and so on as opposed to have having you know 20 airlines that are doing okay but just sort of scraping by and then another sort of 30 airlines that are breaking even or losing a bit yeah. and then a whole bunch of others which are losing a shitload um and at the end of the day, that's all. That's all customer risk, you know. I mean, how many times do airlines go bust when the economy is doing well? Yeah. Quite often. Yeah. So when the economy is doing bad, or there's something like a pandemic, you know, that's gonna, that's surely gonna, gonna, gonna mount that, um, you know, tenfold probably. But um, I don't see that necessarily a bad thing because at the end of the day, the, the good airlines will be the ones that survive, and yeah. that's going to be a benefit to the customers at the end of the day because. You know, there's a lot of airlines out there which are pretty shit um, yeah. and shouldn't really be in business. And are only, yeah, only go to Asia to figure you know, that out. And they're all losing a load. They're all losing loads of money, or they're being subsidised through a whole bunch of nonsense, mm. or they're constantly getting bought out by this guy, then bought out by this hedge fund, and then bought out by this other airline, and flipped the whole time to different businesses. But every time that happens, just weakens the business even more. And you know, it's um, you know, that's probably it's probably good that the, the airline industry, to a certain degree, is going to have a bit of a reset. Um, and uh, I think the customer, the consumers will have a, will have will be the ones who are better off on the back end of it. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, that's based on today. If this goes on for another two years, yeah. then you know, I'm not sure how many airlines can survive that unless they're going to be heavily subsidised by government. Um, it just doesn't make sense. You know, no one's going to be able to survive that. Yeah, uh, it's just interesting to think about that. 
the things that probably would bring it to its knees mm-hmm. aren't just the you know people flying it's just yeah. it's probably all these little things that you just can't can't be overcome once it gets yeah you know down the road um x amount of time it's just that's that's one industry but you sort of have a good point i guess in that um I guess it always looks bleak from kind of where you're standing right yeah. now. But if you look at like the taxi industry, you know, that got completely revolutionized with Uber. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that when you're standing at, at some point standing there, you're thinking this is just going to fuck everything. Yeah. And then now we're like, well, no, the consumer wins here. Like the, the innovation was forced upon this industry. Yep. And I would say that the people that obviously Uber shareholders benefit quite drastically but that's because they provided better a service, great service yeah. to the customer and the market decided yeah exactly and that's how it should be right because at the end of the day if the market decides generally you've got the economic trends which will push it in a certain direction but the consumer at the end of the day is the, is the one that ends up having the ultimate decision i'll give you a good story on this so um back uh, turn of the century in uh, in new york um when the automobile started and uh, there was this huge hoo-ha because um, there was a big union at the time that were essentially um, focused around looking after workers whose jobs it was to clean mm. horse shit off yeah. the roads. Yeah. And um, and they tried for years to get New York, the city of New York, to ban this automobile because they were like, well, you're going to lose you know, hundreds or thousands of jobs from all these guys and all the, all the different stables looking after all the horses that everyone had. What are they going to do? Um, you know, this is going to devastate the economy. Only a few people are going to be able to survive it. It's going to cripple. It's going to be, you know, you know, workers on the sh- now on the streets, jobless and all that sort of thing. Um, it turned out to be bullshit, right? Because actually mm. being able to have cars has actually blown up the economy and actually been a benefit for it um, and given far more opportunity for people to do things that they actually want to do. Because in general, people don't really like cleaning up horse shit. They'd much prefer to have a different job. But in lieu of not having a different job, that's the job that they have. But if you remove that job, you know, it forces them into different uh, into different avenues. And um, the same argument can be to a certain degree, um, not 100%, but to a certain degree um, pushed towards people who are really scared about automation and robotization mm. and so on and business. You know, the big thing is how we're going to be able to support uh, jobs going forward. And at the end of the day, there is probably a tipping point if every single job is pretty much done by uh, robots or, or, or algorithms. Um, you know, you're going to get to a point where you're going to have an issue with an over-expanding population and growing yeah. population and not enough jobs potentially. But so far, we pretty much managed to find new jobs for people because whenever those jobs that jobs people don't really want, like, you know, act, like working on a, on a presser, for example, 100%. people don't really want to do that job. It's shit pay. 100%. It's dirty. It's loud. It's dangerous. People actually... Now, having a robot do that it makes a lot more fucking sense anyway have you thought and, about this a lot the this whole impending sort of automation and i guess like artificial intelligence yeah absolutely yeah it's it's i'd love to hear what your thoughts are on that because it, it's something i've thought about a little bit and obviously i don't really have any skin in the game in manufacturing yeah. and business so i'm sure you're gonna have much better perspectives on it yeah. than yeah i mean i read i read it a long time ago there's a really good book on this called the future by al gore and he actually talks his whole chapter on roboticization roboticization and uh on automation and he explains some of these things that you know there is um there is going to be a massive shift going forward as uh as as people try and as, as businesses try and manufacture things cheaper and cheaper and the human element is always an element of risk because humans make mistakes robots don't make mistakes algorithms don't really, don't really make mistakes unless a computer so unless a human computed the Programs wrong uh, program yeah. into the yeah. into the algorithm that's the mistake the human element 
Um, so naturally, people are going to want to, um, people are going to see a massive transition. It's already happening. It's already happened in a lot of industries already, but that'll continue to uh, to grow. Um, but again, like we we're talking to, the, the end result is a cheaper product, which the people want. You know, you can have businesses which will have uh, people building iPhones, but your iPhone will be $4,000 instead of $1,000. Mm. And the consumer doesn't want that. So, you know, everyone, you see all these people arguing about all these different issues, but the, the bottom line is you can have you can have it the other way, but it comes at a cost. You know, like my cars, for example, that we sell, you know, we do our conversions and we do our, um, our, our performance uh, enhancements. Um, and most of it done by hand. Um, we can't really automate too much or use ro- uh, robotics too much because of the, um, the the complexity in our builds and because of the uh, inability for robot programs to be able to adapt, you know, pretty dramatically from product to product, and the cost of you know implementation and so on. So it's still a lot of it's done by hand, and um, and so the end product is always going to be a lot more expensive than a product which is done on a production on using robots but you know at the same time if you want to have that product the only way we can do it is by yeah. that if you want to have the product which is all done by robots and it's cheaper and so on um, you know you have that option with, with what the automotive business automotive yeah, companies do you buy a base model Yaris you buy a base model Yaris <laughs> but if you want to have a you know performance Yaris for example um, with a you know V6 engine and so on that we do for you know a Toyota or something like that um, you know there's going to be naturally there's going to be a higher cost if you could put robotics into that it would be cheaper but we you know it's not that it's not that simple um but that same argument could then go but when it to, is there you will definitely do it because like you said the consumer does want to pay for the same product but cheaper yeah, consumer wants it cheaper and your competitors will do it cheaper so mm. you know you've, you've got to compete with your, with your competition and um and that's just the natural way that things work but if we're if our business i can again only speak for ourselves but if we were purely price driven um, you know, we would happily go and profit driven. We'd happily go to Thailand or yeah, Mexico, yeah, yeah. and you know, I'd be able to shave thirty, forty percent of my labor cost every single year. And our our labor bill is enormous. You know, it's in tens of millions of dollars a year. So that could be a big benefit to us. But I also think there's uh, a value in being an Australian business that you know employs Australians and and builds here and uses Australian suppliers and so on. Because uh, you know, rightly or wrongly, you know, I think um, I think that's an important uh, I think it's important brand value to have. So with like, let's, let's play it out to when, uh, things are heavily roboticized. Yep. A lot of things are automated. You're going to have thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that, uh, were working in these types of, uh, production line, mm-hmm. manual sort of labor type jobs. They're no longer needed. What's the solution? Be- because I guess that one of the arguments is like a UBI, like a universal basic income. Yep. And then from there you people can sort of they've got the money to live and then you can essentially do what you want Mm. that that argument gets so heavily criticized and you're called like a socialist and if if you ever even think about like that as a valid option right that goes against all of capitalism Mm -hmm. but that's sort of what happened with covid yeah like JobKeeper is essentially for this year we've had universal Mm. basic income for people that qualify for Mm. it and i mean for the people that i know personally that and they're not people that own businesses. They're just basic mm. kind of um, the middle class. Yeah. And they've had fucking great years. They're yeah. getting paid to go surfing and they're, you know, they've done these trips and they've done this sort of, mm. the, you know, all of this lifestyle sort of shit that they couldn't have done because they would have just been working their yep. job. It's like we 
figured out that it can work and then if businesses are more efficient products are cheaper because of um automation in all of these different fields it's like we're sort of doing a little bit of a trial run um for you know how people would live mm. just through this uh job keeper type situation yeah it's an interesting point i think um so the trials that have been done on, on universal basic income have been predominantly done in, in, from what I understand, in Scandinavian countries, and they've done it in rural areas to try and see how it reacts, and they've had sort of mixed results. I guess I see what you're saying in the fact that we've had sort of, a, for a, I guess from a population perspective, we've had a trial run on, yeah. on universal basic income, and it's it's worked quite well, but... Um, it's been a very in, short in order, period of time. It's though. been a short period of time, yeah. but also it's how we paid for it, because we paid for it by taking on debt and by printing, mm. and by printing money. Um, and we've not really had the devaluation of the money of the currencies to be able to equalize the amount of uh, the amount of inflation that we've had. And you look at the U.S. as an example. I think this year, 25% uh, of all U.S. dollars in circulation globally were printed in the last 12 months. 25%, which is a fucking terrifying scary, stat. Yeah. But we haven't seen a 25% devaluation in the US dollar comparative no. to all of the other currencies in the world. So, yeah. you know, you've, it's it's it seems to be artificially maintaining its price point. Um, and when it comes to universal basic income, let's use Australia as an example. So JobKeeper's been primarily uh, paid for through a, a myriad of different ways, but fundamentally in... Uh, for the most part through We're taking on debt, money, right? borrowed money, yeah. uh, printing and so on. And uh, the problem with that is that, you know, that's just taking on debt. So that's not really a solution to the problem, even though it's kind of the solution that everyone finds to most problems at the moment is money's so cheap, everyone just wants to take debt because it doesn't actually really as, cost uh, anything. I guess it's like a different issue, but has just currency in general lost its value? Because like for every... You're going to get me talking about Bitcoin soon, so <laughs> if we go down this route. <laughs> but I mean, every like for every, you know, 50% of everything that you... Well, I don't know how to explain this, but it's like you whatever you borrow, you double... Mm you take on double that like so there's just this ceiling that you can never actually yeah. catch up to it's just a terms. scale of nonsense in different varying degrees it's just so it's all people, bollocks. have we all just lost like has has our society just gone out ah, it's up to shit is there and is there a point where like that has to just tip completely and there's a hard reset and i guess that might lead into you know bitcoin but i guess we could talk about that in the next bit but I just didn't <laughs> yeah, want to, yeah, yeah. Just didn't you don't want to muddy the water didn't want to uh, forget about that but, but so I, I guess I kind of the answer to that point is where does the money come from because mm. at the moment it's coming through debt because we don't have another mechanism to be able to afford it but if you do have businesses that are becoming immensely automated. more profit, profitable through automation yep. theoretically um, you know, if you could apportion some of the savings that they have on to, on the consumers and apportion that to increase taxes for example or not on people because um, I'm quite vehemently opposed to giving any more taxes to people because I thought you think we're grossly overtaxed anyway as, a, as, a, as, a, as a, not not even in Australia even in some European states it's, mm. it's absolutely fucking shocking the amount of money that people spend uh, per year on tax um, but um, taxing corporations I think is, is an important way to find a solution for this I mean you look at especially some of the large global corporations which um, you know may operate in a country like Australia and uh, you know may earn billions of dollars of profits in this country but because they're you know or they're offshore or they yeah. have a different structure they actually pay minimal tax even on their earnings here which is which is which is absurd um, so the ultimate solution really is to 
push the universal basic income and spread it across the corporation taxes and so on and the other tax mechanisms that currently exist to a certain degree. It may not fix the whole whole problem, but it should help the help some of the some, yeah. of, some of the solution. Um, but I think you probably need an economist who's far smarter than I am to be able to come up with the proper um, answer on this. But it seems to me that if you're going to be able to go to a universal basic income, you need to find a better mechanism to be able to afford it than just taking on debt because yeah. that's not a solution. That's that's a short-term fix, um, as we've noticed now with COVID. But you know, I think I read somewhere that the, the debt that's been taken out to support the people in Australia over the last year of COVID is going to take something like seven or eight years to pay off, which is yeah. actually a seriously long amount of time. So when you if, consider that it's like all the running costs of Australia yeah. continue to accrue during those seven years like this is extra on top of that yeah and a lot of businesses and industries actually did quite well during COVID so we're paying their taxes and all that sort of thing so it's um it's a it's a super complex issue that I don't pretend in the slightest to have an answer for (laughs) I think that one of one of the things that could work I mean I feel like big business like the real big business would kind of just squash this shit anyway but I feel like if there's a way in which the workers that lose their jobs to this automation process or there's there's some kind of I guess union where or you can own a machine Hmm. you know what i mean like if your your job gets replaced you're on this uh factory floor let's say this one machine does the one robot does the job of 15 workers those 15 workers then get a share of that one robot kind of thing it'd be a theoretical share like a cooperative you know what i mean so like everybody that lose is displaced by these jobs they buy into um buy into it and then they're paid out their UBI essentially through the work that the machine is doing so you you wouldn't have the corporation owning all of the all of these because essentially you don't have to pay a robot like it's a one time sort of deal you know yeah so you, maybe still need, there's you, still something capi- there. you still need the capital up front mm. um, to be able to purchase the machinery I guess so it's, it's how you end up coming up with the mechanism that that would uh, that that would be fairly allocated to the company which is essentially taking on the risk of yeah. and the burden of the capital outlay initially um, in order to pay it off over time as the machine works um, and then if you're going to be apportioning some of that to labor that are no longer working for you it's you know at some point i think quite rightly the, the company would sit there and say yeah, yeah. what value i'm paying you guys what value are you giving me i'm just giving value to you and that value is actually being pulled away from not only me as a business but also as potential savings to our customers which would then grow our business yeah, and, yeah there's a there's a there's a, um, a risk of uh, unrealized potential value as well um so um, yeah I, I see what you're getting at but i think that if you're looking at just reallocating money from a business that should be more profitable based on um, changing those behaviors or you know investing into uh, investing capital into into machinery that removes jobs that makes the process more efficient or more profitable then there's probably smarter mechanisms um, mm. which you can allocate that a portion that or allocate that money outside of having to have some sort of cooperative shareholding in the machinery I think that um, the best way of well, the best way that we have currently of reallocating money is really taxes. The problem is, is that taxes aren't really allocated very well, and uh, there's various reasons for that. And I'm oversimplifying everything, and I'm probably adding in a bit of Dunning Kruger here as well by thinking I know more than I do on on the subject. And but, that's what we're here for, mate. Um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to chat shit. So let's do it. Um, well, it's fun. I think you could see that with the the U.S. election. Yeah, like that was just a clusterfuck, a complete schmozzle. Like they still how don't, shocking was it? They still don't have a president, and it's like. When I when I was living there, I, I lived there through the like that initial Trump election from mm-hmm. Obama to Trump, and 
everyone's would say to me like oh as an australian what i'm like well for everyone's doing the same fucking thing wrong the fact that you got to write on a piece of paper and then put it in a box of cardboard and then you got to have people count the fucking bits mm. of paper what are we doing yeah. what are we like let's just start with that for a yeah. start before we talk about what's wrong with the candidates what's wrong with their po- let's just talk about the process of fucking picking these people yeah it's terrible and then people would say like oh but you, you know like they could hack the they could hack it if it was an electronic vote i'm like do you e-bank mm-hmm. all of the world's money is electronically counted yep. and it seems fairly accurate mm. so it's like you know like you said to innovation there there's room for innovation just mm-hmm. in that one example and i'm sure if we thought about it there's a thousand things where if there was like a corporate enterprise mm-hmm. tasked with innovating certain things yep. but then like you said that just it that can't happen it's a good point and there's loads of different solutions that have already been spoken about countless times from you know just doing just uh, standard um, you know essentially digitalizing the uh, the voting process to using blockchain for trying to uh, secure mm. networks so that you can't get hacked for example um, you know, there's loads of different things. I mean it is, a, it is a genuine concern because if you end up doing everything on your voter registry and, and the voting process online you are at risk of hacking but we have enormous amounts of information which can steer a whole bunch of global issues every single day which are yeah. all online constant. and we're it's constant, constant risk. and so we're at constant risk of that and um, you know the risk is I, I probably think the risk would be greater in currently having the, the you know the people writing with a pen and paper and putting it in a box and then having some other person sitting there and counting it and all that sort of stuff that's rife with potential risks of fraud literally um, then thousands and thousands yeah. of contact points where yeah. you could contaminate what you're trying exactly. to be like essentially like mm. an airtight procedure yeah and and you know the stories are not just in the u.s but of people losing votes and you know things like that i mean i can't remember what i was where i was uh i was with my girlfriend the other night we were watching um uh, superstore which is a comedy on amazon it's a bit like The Office, and they end up having a. This was before votes. This is before Trump. So this episode aired. Um, I think it was Obama versus uh, uh, Mitt Romney. Romney, yeah. And in the superstore, they were doing one. Of, they were one of the polling stations. And the whole joke of the episode is they have a big box of votes and they end up pouring coffee in it and fuck all the votes up and then they're there and they're like <laughs> we're gonna go to we're gonna go to jail for ten years and so that was taking the piss out of voter fraud before it obviously became the big issue that's become this year in the U.S. Um, but that's much more risky than having it all digitalized because when you've got it all digitalized, you can have a whole bunch of algorithms, protection algorithms, save keys, and so on, which are constantly looking at the data and can observe and correlate that, and, and are going to be much easier to expose things like um, you know rogue nation interference, like a Russia trying to hack the mm. the polling station or something like that. You know, when you have it digitalized, you can actually have okay, you've got more risk of, of people being able to try and you know digitally hack into it, which is, in my opinion, a irrational risk compared to the security measures that we have. But uh, you can actually have security measures which you can quantify, analyze, you can see and have oversights over the whole process constantly, yeah. you know, billions of times a second. Um, so you can look for things that don't make sense and have them come up and be you know flagged and warned much, much easier than when you have everything done in the dark with a bunch of people in small rooms and stuff outside of Walmart in uh, the <laughs> middle of Pennsylvania. You know, yeah. it, it, it's such an archaic way of going about trying to do a process which we still hold so valuable in our society. Yeah. So, And the end result at the end of this has been like, democracy has been completely undermined because you've got the president-elect, well, the president saying, I'm still the president, and yeah. then the president-elect just like, 
chilling. Yeah, I mean, to be, let's also remember the fact that Donald Trump was saying that he was going to get defrauded out of the election from yeah. day one while he was in there. So his his wines and chants, uh, uh, you know, of you know anyone in the world of the brain could have predicted that Trump wasn't going to go out, you yeah. know, peacefully from being voted out. Um, and you can guarantee that if he'd won the election, he would not be talking about voter fraud. He'd be saying that it was the fairest, greatest election of all time and all that sort of <laughs> shit, right? Um, but the fact so, that, that, like, the fact that someone can even make that statement yeah. is, like, kind of the problem, right? Like, that, that doesn't that undermine what we're sort of doing? Because, you know, you get, let's say you've got this digital election that works quite well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've got the live count. It's literally, there's two parties. Yep. There's a blue line and a red line. The fucking red line yep. wins or the blue line wins. And it's yep. like, there's just no room to even say that. Yeah. No, there, there isn't. And, um, you know, it's difficult. So I, don't, I don't think there's actually any country. I think, what is it, I think it's one of, the, again, one of the Scandinavian countries that seem to be the most advanced in a lot of these sort of issues. <laughs> all the weird shit, yeah, but they, yeah, but they just seem to be more, you know, socially advanced when it comes to taking risk on these things and just being more logical and rational about how they process stuff. Um, and I can't remember which country it is, but one of them, I think you can vote. And I think that for the next election, they said they were going to be able to be able to vote using your um, all your information from home. So if you've got a smart TV, an Xbox or a PlayStation, um, which is particularly valuable for young voters who don't really want to go yeah. out and get off their ass and go and vote, which is obviously which is me, large. Yeah. Which is, yeah, but it's true there, right? <laughs> yeah, 100%. It was me at uni. I woke up hungover on the voting on my first ever day I could vote in the UK. And I was like, fuck, I can't be bothered to get on. That's pissing down with rain. I'm here, I'm hungover. I just want to sit on my sofa. You know, my vote's not going to matter anyway. That kind of attitude. But when 100,000, 200,000, 300,000 people have that same attitude. Exactly. But if you can then bring that process to them, no different than we've done with everything else that technology has been able to do. You're making things faster, cheaper, better, more, you know, easier yeah. to access and so on. Um, there's no reason why you couldn't do that with voting as well. If you had a strong enough, more robust enough software system and um, an application that you could end up uh, allowing people to use. I mean, why, do we got, why haven't we got an app that allows us to vote? You put all your information in, yeah. uses the IP address of your computer or your, or your phone or something like that. You can have your fingerprints and all that sort of stuff done there. And you don't have to get off your... You can wake up in the morning on voting day, press your thumb on, do all your, all your facial recognition and stuff. And then that's your vote. And it goes through and it gets counted automatically by the software systems and in independently verified by multiple different you know yeah. NGOs and all that sort of stuff to make sure that well, in the, the software's working that, like in the same way that when you're at an ATM they record your, yeah, your face your yeah. inputs as yeah. well so like you could do that there's a front camera on every phone yep. and then you could have pressure sensitive yep. recordings on every touch like you could yep. you could record like anal- in a sense analog record mm-hmm. the voting process as well yep. but I think like I've been massive on just direct democracy. Mm. Like, I don't think that we need to speak before about the way that there's this bureaucratic mess of basically every Western government. Let's just get rid of most of the politicians in the sense of, like, I've got, I've always had the idea, it's probably got more holes in a sieve, but you've got this, um, you've got an app that, that you've, everyone's got on your phone, you don't have to vote, it's completely optional. You can vote on any issue that's within. You've got like national issues that you're allowed to, everyone in the nation's obviously allowed to vote on. You've got state issues that you can vote on if you live this in a state. And then you've got local issues if you live in X distance of whatever the issue mm-hmm. is that's being voted on. But not everybody can vote. There's a series of things that you have to read and then you mm-hmm. get a, a, a super simple quiz just based on the material if you can answer those correctly that includes arguments for and against the bill that you want to vote on mm. so you would have had to read both sides of the of the argument 
then you can just directly submit uh, a vote. And then from there, you just would have less, I guess, politicians that want to argue these mm. laws and more just like committees that are tasked with actually implementing what has been voted Mm. and then i think that you are going to get a ton of people that just don't give a fuck Mm. and don't want to but then i guess that puts this accountability back on people that a new like i think gay marriage would probably be like the perfect example Mm -hmm. for that um type of but didn't we have that didn't we have a vote for for gay marriage yeah but so i i guess implementing this system would be like it just comes to mind as an easy thing like everyone can vote on it yeah you've got to read material because that's the a big problem with just politics in general now is that the way that facebook algorithms instagram youtube all these algorithms are set up like you kind of just get sent on a rabbit hole in the direction that you it's just a goldfish bowl yeah that you lean so you know having a a a setup that would make you read both sides Mm -hmm. of the argument before you can even have a say but let's just say you do that for gay marriage you know you might have all these people that um let's say that law gets passed because they're tech savvy people that actually wanted to Mm -hmm. go and vote and then you get all the people are like well fucking we didn't want that Mm -hmm. and that's like well you gotta vote and then you've got to read the material so it's like you would have this core group of people i think that would be very active constantly reading the literature around things and constantly making these informed decisions and then if society starts kind of going this way and enough people feel like they're missing out on their vote then hey it's right there that Mm. app's on your phone you just have to read both sides it's not super complicated legal yeah you know what i mean but you get these you have to be at least semi-educated on both sides of the coin before you can make a yes or no vote. But I think that, you know, down the down the track, like that seems like to me the logical way to do it. I don't think that I should have to vote for one person mm. that then, like I don't agree with my mum on everything. No. I love my fucking mum. I don't agree with her on everything. So why should I vote for one politician and then whatever that dude says for mm. the rest of the four years, I agree with everything he says yeah it's a good point um there's 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 obviously some risk around what you're saying because then who who decides what the two sides of the argument are and who puts Mm. that into the information pack that the person has to read and how can that get manipulated and you can guarantee that if it's you know something which is like should we ban petrol cars for example Mm. um you can guarantee that the oil lobbyists will be putting everything they can into making sure that that literature is very very one-sided to try and you know inform the very plus all the marketing they're doing the back end to target those groups and all that sort of stuff so how you manage that would be quite difficult but i don't think you could do it on every single issue no yeah too much yeah it it would be and also you've got to be really careful on the issues you choose because there's some things that are just too complex for and for Mm. for, for most people to be able to comprehend i'll use something like uh what's a health issue um uh okay let's use an example which is topical so the covid vaccine anti-vaxxers are losing their little minds at the moment because they're all terrified about the vaccine coming out and coming up with a whole bunch of completely (laughs) spurious claims you don't even have to go any further you're so fucking right there's people that think that wi-fi is going to kill them yeah i mean the yeah (laughs) you're right maybe i'm fucking retarded even thinking that people should have any responsibility yeah but 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 that doesn't mean but that's a that's a byproduct of a poor education system yeah because if you actually have a good education system which is um which allows you and teaches you how to think logically 
value information, understand, it helps you understand the complexity of issues so you don't end up falling into Dunning-Kruger where you think that, um, falling into Dunning-Kruger where you think that, uh, you know, complex subjects are actually really simple because mm. you're actually, without sounding rude, you're too stupid and uneducated to actually understand the complexity of the topic. So yeah. you simplify it in your own mind. And um, so it's, it's, it's one of those things where if you, if you want to go and have this new voting structure like you're talking about, if you can uh, come up with a system which where you have an education system that's uh, more supportive of those kind of uh, those kind of mindsets and those kinds of teachings, that would probably be able to work. But at the moment, I don't think we do mm. have that. And one of the issues, um, and there's a great co- podcast I uh, I listened to a fair while ago about this on Wondery, which was um, they were talking about how the education system is fundamentally flawed, and the reason that we have so many people who are so gullible watch you know a couple of YouTube videos from some naturopath asshat who. Yeah left school at 14 and just drinks ayahuasca all, all year and suddenly thinks that he's a, a genius on vaccinations yeah. has got more value than an immunologist who did seven years of medical school 35 years of practicing it and knows everything about the subject that their opinion mm. val- is valueless or equal in value to some idiot that I've just watched a YouTube video on with yeah. no credentials whatsoever and it's it's crazy but people are genuinely doing that at a, more, is, rapid, yeah, at a more rapid pace and it's not just on vaccinations it's on a whole bunch of things you know there was YouTube videos going around that even my friends who are relatively educated were sharing which was you know some guy who was claiming that viruses don't actually exist and there's never been a confirmed virus and you're sitting there like the fuck do people believe this <laughs> like, but that's again it's a product of the education system yeah. not educating people on how to critically evaluate information, how to understand the credibility of sources and the information you're getting, to be able to also understand your own biases, how you naturally end up looking at your own things that confirm your own bias because you don't actually want things that you learn that tell you you're wrong. Yeah. It's much easier just to ignore that and then focus on things that even if you're even if it's wrong, you're getting bits of information that, you know, they confirm that pre existing bias or idea that you have and actually reinforce it. And um, you know, then you've got things like you've done in Kruger and cognitive dissonance and all these other things. And now it's easier than ever to join a tribe. Exactly. That it's a community in whatever you want. Yep. And so people get confused, they want to have answers, generally simple answers of what they're looking for. There's communities of people that do that. You get called you know names or stupid or stuff if you believe something which is fringe even if it may might be right and you are believing something stupid like the earth is flat mm. um but you sit there and say is, obviously. obviously i mean actually no it's not it's a donut shape but um and uh the problem is, is that they end up congregating in these little sort of you know fringe communities with other people that all agree that each other are right and actually everyone else is an idiot we're the smart ones yeah. we're the ones that have found the truth and all this other stuff is just a facade and you know it just continues to reinforce and as you say the problem with all the social media is that you end up having the algorithm just reinforces things that you already already believe in it just reinforce it just gives you more and more yeah. data of things that they know you already want to engage in and so it ends up giving you a false sense of security in the feeling that there's you know the, that your views are more commonly held than, than they what really they are, are yeah. and so it ends up just creating this massive uh, concentration effect and that goes for fringe things like flat earthers but it also goes for things like politics now mm. so if you're right wing or left wing or centrist and you know it doesn't matter you know you're all you're getting is information which is constantly pushing your pre-existing bias and that's not giving you a perspective and we used to have perspective we used to have newspapers where you know even that before the internet our parents would be sitting there and getting most of their information from the news and newspapers. But they also understood that 
each newspaper had a different bias, like a Fox News or a CNN. Yeah. But it was nowhere it's so near... It's obvious it's, in America now too. Like yeah. Crazy, crazy obvious. But it's become extreme, right? And it's become far more extreme mm. than we've ever than we've ever seen or witnessed previously. Um, but again, it, it, it like sometimes I speak to my American friends and they're like, yeah, Fox News is right. CNN is so biased. I'm like, dude, are you fucking kidding? Like, they're both biased. They're like, both they're, biased. They're both aggressively biased yeah. on each different side. One's yeah. not right or wrong. They're both very very aggressively biased but you know i've got my own opinion on on, on each one anyway but um but the, the 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 problem is is that our parents used to know when they used to read a newspaper like a murdoch newspaper for example that they knew that it was going to be more right wing at yeah. least in the uk it was and then in the you know uk then you got more left wing like guardian but they knew and understood that the information they were getting was going to have a slant whereas now for some reason so many people that i talk to they seem so aggressively passionately uh, sure in themselves that what they believe isn't slanted it's not biased and everything else is so that mindset shift of understanding that what you're reading mm. you've got to take everything with a pinch of salt is now shifted to what I believe is right because I've got all these other variables in my life like on my Facebook feed Twitter yeah. feed Instagram feed which is confirming that and I'm now on the side of correct and you're on the side of wrong and I think that's what's also creating a lot of the um the, uh, the 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 social uh, injustice and strife and and fragmentation in the U.S. because you know you've now got these two sides. It's like they're at war, you know, yeah. to a certain degree. Um, and you know that's only going to keep getting worse while we have these mechanisms in place. I don't understand how without these mechanisms being significantly changed, and there's so many to change over yeah. such a vast amount of of, uh, of influence on all of our lives. Uh, I don't understand how you find a solution for that because it seems so ingrained in what we are now. Um, yeah, you know, it takes a pretty big shift in a whole bunch of different areas to be able to pull yourself out of that. Well, the problem is, is that the like this has been a at the start with COVID. I was like, you know what, this is maybe a good thing in the sense that it gives us perspective that the family in China that is you know barely getting by and works in a sweatshop or whatever mm. they're dealing with the same virus as we are yep. and then the people that are in the favelas in brazil and the people that are in texas this is now like mm. a global problem and you would hope that that would give you like a a sense of global community mm-hmm. in a way in the same way where you talk about people after 9 11 in new york there was just like this real mm-hmm. community thing but all that fades eventually yeah and it's like what does it take like the scary thing is what it actually does take to have like a lasting impact is something like a great depression or like a, a world war mm. but we're sort of to the point where you head into that territory now in 2020 with all the shit that's available then that's just we sort of can't go there yeah so it's like how do you make a radical change without a extremely radical uh problem i'll um i've got i've got a pretty strong view on this i think hope is a much stronger force than uh than fear for medium to long term fear is a much stronger force for short-term issues because it's a survival instinct thing um and a lot of the things that we see play out is uh, is heavily fear-based and it's fear-based because it's a reaction it gets clicks mm. on the news and so on but um when we actually look at things that have really benefited the, the world it's mainly science and technology it's coming up with something which develops hope and brings communities together for an, an, a goal which is bigger than ourselves um, and I forget the quote but um, uh, I believe it was uh, on when uh, we had the first moon landing and um, I think it was Buzz Aldrin or I'm going to get this wrong because I can't remember which astronaut it was but they looked out and we saw the earth for the first ever time from an, another mm. object in space and it was uh, he's called it the pale blue dot and he said that all the 
bullshit that's going on in the world. I'm obviously not exactly anything he said bullshit when he was sat on the moon, <laughs> yeah. um, saying something quite profound. Um, but essentially, um, he uh, he was saying that you know all the politics and all the war and all the hatred and anger and all the division and stuff on Earth just looks so insignificant when you actually look at the Earth from so far away. And so I think that when you actually come up with ideas of how to bring people together, I think hope is something that people want. And it doesn't necessarily have to be hope for something locally. It could be hope for something, for example, coming up with a with the idea that we're going to all join together and, and we're going to try and conquer the task of going to Mars or something like that. You know, those big, you know, those big objectives, those big missions that forced everyone to work together. We've seen that it can happen. We saw it with the International Space Station. It's mm. the International Space Station for a reason and it managed to be a huge international funding and operational effort between a whole bunch of countries that, and scientific communities that even though, you know, at the time the Chinese and the Americans you know, haven't been getting along very well during that process and the Chinese and the Russians seems like a lot of people seem to struggle with America by not saying it like yeah, this but yeah. but you know they, they, they this, these scientific communities they pushed all the political bullshit aside and they all worked together to create this incredible fantastic goal mm. of having an international space station for communal scientific research in, in space for whatever country you are around the world and I think that those things are some of the triumphs of humanity because you know uh, I don't think much is really accomplished when we're so divided, but I think when we look to try and come up with a, an almost unachievable objective, an unachievable yeah. mission, and you all end up doing it together, it, it helps you put aside all the petty shit and actually gives you something which we can all work together on and makes you realize that together we're stronger. Um, so what I'd love to see in, is is going forward, and we saw this a little bit with um, the space race, even though that initially it was a anti-Russia, anti-America thing, but it certainly was something in America that join a lot of people together yeah. and then we've seen that evolve into what it is today which is from the stems of the cold war um you know things like the international space station hubble space uh, space telescope yeah. and things like that and you know new objectives to go and and, uh, and explore further things into space so um you know i think when it comes to trying to find something in hope you know genuinely the real results the real things that showed real results in that area are um are uh, things of human achievement and that generally involves science and technology not politics and bureaucracy man the what you said about hope is that's so intrinsic to not just humanity but just all of life hope is something that it doesn't die until death itself mm. and you know you look at you can cut a snake with a shovel mm. and that thing's still gonna slither around like yeah. your, your heart beats completely automatically you breathe there's all of these processes that are built into life itself that it's so automatic and there's constant hope even at the yeah. un, literally until it's gone and mm. it is a i guess it's i you need to tap into that in in terms of your psychology not mm. just like on a biological level because on a biological level that exists in its com most complete form mm -hmm. and you've got no control over it yeah no absolutely and then you know, it's, it's how you end up using that as well because it's great to come up with an idea that you think will bring a lot of people together. And let, I'll just use an example. I'm not saying this is it, but let's say it's, you know, to set up a colony on Mars, we're going to have to, you know, get all the countries around the world to work together to go and accomplish that enormous task. You know, forget all your military budgets and all that sort of shit. Let's mm. you know, put that money into something which is genuinely going to benefit humanity. Or another thing could be coming up with, you know, nuclear fish, uh, fusion, for example, yeah. coming up with fusion reactors, which would essentially solve all of Every our problem. all of our energy yeah. problems it would be a new they would have the same impact on our society today as the industrial revolution had like back in the turn of the century yeah. exactly so it's an enormous enormous benefit for getting this solved 
But at the moment, you know, we spend so much money fighting with each other, arguing with each other, you know, whether that's, you know, nationally with politics or globally with, uh, with um, every kind of, uh, every kind of, (laughs) (laughs) now that's important Uh, or was, Um, but you know, I think, uh, I think coming up with, with, with things like that just is an opportunity to bring people together. And I think we need more of that because we, so much is focused on trying to divide each other at the moment, be that in the media, be that in social media, be that the attitudes that people have, that sometimes we need to sort of reset ourselves and actually start reminding each other that actually we're all together in this and, um, there's not enemies in all of us. Actually, we're all the same. We just got mm. pushed in different directions. But it doesn't matter where you come from, who you are, what you believe, what political side you are, what religion, what religion you are, if you're gay, straight, or anything else. You know, we're, we're all human beings. And when you have something which is an objective for all of humanity, and it needs to be, you know, intrinsically above the sort of psychology of just stuff that happens day to day on planet mm. Earth. You know, we need some sort of objective or goal to move ourselves forward. And uh, I don't have an answer for that. I really don't. I'd love to, but um, you know, I think that historically that's been something which has been a uh, a, a pretty profound changer in uh, in in how we can try and divert ourselves away from a lot of the uh, the day to day bullshit that actually, in the universal scheme of things, is completely and utterly irrelevant. Well, I think it's interesting that that you bring <clears throat> up the the quote from the first moonwalk, mm. and it just says that yeah, the Earth is just this little sort of blue dot. Like everybody can do that exercise with themselves mm. like if you're at this distance to me and i'm like oh what am i and you're like mm. oh you're jace you're sitting over there right there and then if you go back a hundred meters you're like oh you're a way smaller version of yourself but you're still you yeah and then you go back three kilometers mm. and you're like oh you're kind of burly mm. like you just look like the gold coast and mm. let's say you're going out and then you keep zooming out and then i keep asking the question what mm. am i now and you're it's like perspective exactly and i think that everybody at some point if you zoom out from yourself mm-hmm. far enough then you are the mm. blue dot like that that same mm. thing holds true for everybody as like an individual person if you zoom out far enough from yourself mm-hmm. from the perspective of somebody that you can talk to right then and there then you do become everything and Mm. then you can do the same way when you go in like if you go and hold you know right now you're here and then you get closer and you go oh you're just a nose and two eyes and now you're uh skin and then you keep going further and further into that then you get down to the layer of oh your dna now you're just molecules and Mm. molecules are made up of atoms and atoms are made up of mostly nothing Mm -hmm. so you get to a point on the inverse of that where i'm essentially nothing yeah so i'm nothing and everything all at the same time and if you could if people could like have that insight daily Mm -hmm. think about that three times daily well i'm everything and nothing kind of at the same time it sort of would give you more of that perspective maybe you know I, th- I think another. I think it's a good point. I think another thing that I think really helps enhance that is kind of what we we're talking about earlier, which is travel. Mm. So I've learned more about being a human from visiting different cultures um, than I probably have from anything else. And I think that you can learn about that in school. You can read about it, but going and visiting places like Thailand and China mm. and Japan and Russia and Africa and countries in Africa like uh, Botswana and you know South Africa and Mozambique and things like that. You know, when you go and visit these different cultures, you actually l- realize that 
you think you're grown up and you're taught in a certain community and society that this is the way that things happen. This is the way thing, th- th- we do things. And you naturally, not through any fault of your own, but you naturally yeah. start thinking that's the way that things are and that's the best way that things should be because you yeah. know no different. You know, you've got no perspective. You've just got the smallest reference point. Exactly. So, you know, I think there's a really famous quote, and I can't remember, who, again, who said it. Um, uh, but he said, you know, the only thing that you spend money on that makes you richer is travel. Mm. Um, everything else you spend money on just makes you poorer. Um, and I think that's uh, I think that's quite a wise quote because, you know, it, it genuinely does. If you go and embrace it, you know, you can learn so much from going and visiting, you know, some impoverished people in a favela in Brazil. Um, and I did that recently with Hales. You know, we spent a day, you know, walking around the favelas and, and meeting people and, um, you know, and you just learn so much about those people's way of life. And it doesn't necessarily mean that your way of life is better than theirs or vice versa, but it just gives you a different perspective and mm. gives you more understanding on how different people think differently about diff- about all different things or often about think differently about the same thing, mm. which is often even more valuable in trying to learn how you uh, get perspective. Um, so, yeah, it's an interesting point. Did, uh, did Was there like one particular thing when you first went to a third world country or a different country what really hit you because I had uh I've had a couple one one of which though was in Vietnam and I mean I traveled quite a bit before this mm. but this one really hit me fucking like yeah I was like oh dude in this the is, fields yeah this is this is a, this is a good one but this kid was probably seven or eight years old and uh he just had like this little bucket of like kerosene and shit mm-hmm. and a pack of lighters and this kid's deal was like he just would fire breathe for tourists tiny tiny kid right. doing this fire breathing show and for some reason that just really fucking got me and I, it just instant hit of perspective of whatever your problems are at eight years old i definitely did not have to hustle for cash in ho chi Minh by spitting fire out of my mouth yeah i mean i probably had a few big nights out where i've probably done that just for fun but um <laughs> yeah, man, sam, sam, sam was sam was probably oh next God. to me yeah. fucking egging me on nah these three lighters this time ryan you pussy <laughs> let's get out the race fuel <laughs> yeah. fuck that would hurt um uh, this fire breathing is brought to you by mobile one <laughs> um I, I think yeah there's a few things i mean uh, in India is one of the countries I've been, I spent a lot of time in. That's you know pretty really? thought provoking and in, in how you see you know um, pretty. Uh, there's a few things that give you some perspective there. I'll give you one example. I was doing some business with Tata, one of the largest companies on 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 earth and one of the largest Indian companies. What do they do? Like everything, huge, 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 uh, huge conglomerate. They've got an automotive business. Yeah. And they, um, I think they're, I think they're the biggest truck company in India, which is enormous just That's by quite itself. A big country. It's a big country with <laughs> yeah. a lot of trucks. So yeah. um, I think it dwarfs a lot of other truck companies. Um, but they've got a car company as well. And um, uh, we we actually ended up importing them here for a little bit, but it didn't really work out. But uh, it did mean I mean I spent a lot of time over there. And um, there was one guy who I think it was, uh, I won't give his exact position because I won't talk uh, specifics, but there was someone who worked there, one of the top management executives of the business. And, um, you know, we're in this big skyscraper, he's there in his suit and, you know, we got to know him pretty well, went out for dinners and stuff. And um, and uh, he ended up opening up at one time. He said, uh, uh, we were talking about our houses and stuff like that. And he'd been on holiday and he's like, oh, you know, I don't really, I don't really go on holiday very often. I just go on holiday. If I go for work, I'll travel, but I don't go on holiday. Um, I was like, you know, well, where's your house? And he goes, oh, well, uh, my house is in, in the slums over here. I was like, I was quite shocked. So I was like, you're a big executive at a, a large multinational corporation, one of the biggest in the world. 
um that kind of hit me i was like you live in one of the slums and he's yeah yeah yeah. he's like i live in a little one one bedroom house in the slums it's you know with all the you know corrugated iron roof and a satellite dish he's like i've got a tv so i'm happy and i live there with my wife in the same room with my five kids like fuck you know then you know when you i'd never i for whatever reason i didn't have the perspective that someone who could be in a high position role in a in a business like that yeah would be in the same the same kind of bracket as uh you know the kind of people you would expect would be living in the slums and in impoverished parts of of mumbai so that was something that resonated quite hard i didn't realize that it was that prevalent yeah. the, the amount you know the amount of people that actually um live like that you know um and i think that's you know maybe some of my privilege and my upbringing but i just for whatever reason that just really struck home um and there was a another one when i was in india which was when we were at the formula one for the first ever um delhi grand prix i think it only went on for a couple of years actually there was two things on that trip one of them was when i was talking to some of the guys um you know they were all proud of their new racetrack um and their new building which was um which was okay it was a quite pretty racetrack to be honest and um and they kept saying yeah only only 65 people died building this only 65 people died building this as if that was a massive accomplishment (laughs) and i was like fuck 65 people died building this like if one person died in the uk building this it would be front page news massive drama huge health and safety shut the track down you know health and safety on all the on all the the construction company doing this you know and and there'd be there'd be audits and fines and all sorts of stuff but they're like 65 people have only died this is one of the you know best big projects we've had like this in ages what how good's our health and safety i was like you know so that just again from a perspective point of view yeah they thought that that was good because comparatively to some other construction projects of that similar size you know there were expectations the amount of people that would have died during the process of construction would have been far far greater um so that was um that gives you an idea about how people value life differently and i guess the ultimate way that people value life differently which i which i learned when i was in india was in going to the track on the first day um on this big sort of it's a four-lane motorway but in india they've managed to somehow turn it into an eight-lane motorway and everyone's just sort of pushed together and there's animals on the fucking road and all sorts of stuff and then there's a cow that no one's allowed to move someone's got to go around it and all that sort of stuff and um, and there was like a, a dude who was asleep on the side of the road or looked like he was asleep on the side of the road and we went past him it was like he had a big night and then um, we came back and he was still there and I said to Haley, I was like I think that guy might be dead next morning drive past and same guy's there no. come back I so the guy had obviously been hit or something like that or died in, in the side of the road and um, we did that trip for Haley. how many times did we do it four times yeah, four times wow. there and back, and on the on the last day he was he was still there, and this was in hot Delhi, you know, forty degree heat and all that sort Fuck. of stuff, and his body was just left there. No one, no one, hundred like thousands and thousands, if not tens or even hundreds of thousands of people would have driven yeah. past that body, and um, not a single person thought about picking it up, which is kind of. Uh, kind of shocking to me yeah but that's just again it's just the difference in 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 how people you know value life or how they how they operate their communities you know you can't go and say that's the wrong thing even though i may think it is um but it's just a different different way of how they go about uh go about their lives and and how they value life or how they value bodies and things like that so the frustrating thing with that is is that we live in a society where none of that shit happens Mm. and everyone still carries on Mm as though life's that hard Mm -hmm. exactly you know what i mean and that's sort of one of the things that is kind of frustrating about living in you know that's you can go to bali or you know thailand and places like that and you can you know i've done some like uh martial arts camps Mm -hmm. where you just sort of live in a like a hut and it's it's not super glamorous and 
Man, you can just be so happy. No one's complaining. No one's bummed about their situation. That their, you know, mum and dad sort of deals is in their house cooking you great food. Yeah. And then you can come back home. You can, you know, you be in a place where they've got literally nothing. You come back home and then everything's a problem again. And you're mm. just like, if it's not a problem for these people that have it way harder, objectively harder yeah. too. Not yeah. not harder in the, you know, the sense that you'd make it up in your mind. Yeah. Like they don't have hot water. They don't have yeah. electricity. Objectively, their life is harder than ours. Yeah. And you can see people here that complain. Yeah, but people love to complain, don't they? And and you can tell how soft we've all, a lot of us have become by... And uh, I was actually talking about this, I think, with Sam the other night when we went out for some beers. We were always going out with beers with you, isn't it? There was never... I was having this time at Sam's house and we are just having a nice conversation. <laughs> <laughs> it's always... I was having beers with Sam. Sam made me a, a delightful <laughs> cup of English breakfast. <laughs> no, nice, yeah. Um... <laughs> But um, we were talking about it. I was saying, you know, when, with all the people who are kicking off about masks and masks being, you know, they were feeling oppressed because yeah. they were wearing masks. I was like, fuck. Like, you know, just just under 100 years ago, people were being pulled out of school at 16 years old, given a rifle and sent across the world with no idea when you were coming home to go and fight an army in another country that you barely heard of. Mm. And they just got on, they just got up and did it for their own civil duty and because they thought it was the right thing to do. And during COVID, one of the things we've all been asked to do is wear a mask. That's it. Oh, and sit and sit at home. <laughs> yeah. And that's now. Oh, we're being oppressed. You're not being fucking oppressed. <laughs> you're just yeah. you're just doing a really simple, easy task, which is uncomfortable. And yes, it's not perfect. And no, no one really wants to do it. But considering some of the other, you know, torments and turmoil that we've had as a species over the years, it's pretty low down the oppression yeah. list. Well, but you want to talk about oppression, more people are enslaved right now exactly. than ever before yeah. in all of human history. Yeah. Where's, where's all the people in the US? I'll use that as an example only because I saw this stat recently where 25% of the global international uh, prison population are just in the US, yeah. 25%. So what everyone's... I all, all, just thought about this the other day. All these people are sitting there in, in the US and they're complaining about being oppressed with masks and causing such a fuss about it. Like enormous enormous like people are going carrying civil on liberty. civil liberty they're, yeah. they're on their social media daily screaming about it as if it's the worst thing that's ever happened in their entire lives and um, but where are the people who are actually looking at things that are actually genuinely demonstrably issues in their society it just all gets mm. you know they just cover over those cracks and ignore it um but again it's because we've kind of i think a lot of people just become quite softer things mm. and um and i think also going back to what we were saying earlier it's easy to rile people up because you know, people are just getting all their views reinforced and you know probably a lot of these people they don't even know the fact that there's you know massive issues in their own country and that goes for australia that goes to the uk yeah. every, every country's got their problems right we're being unfair on using us as an example i'm just saying that because that was it's a, just so easy it's it's so it's, <laughs> but it is when you're looking at something like that it it, it, it is um and uh but yeah again it's all comes again it all comes down to perspective again right yeah well i thought that the other day i had someone mention the u.s uh incarceration rate yeah and i was like how can you be called the leader of the free world when your country has the highest percentage mm. of people that are literally not free yeah like how what well, there's there's some weird obviously freedom isn't free mm. if that's the case 
Yeah, it's a difficult one. I, I just didn't realize it was that high. I thought it's I thought crazy. I thought countries with much larger populations like India or, or China would have been at least close, but they're 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 really not. So no, it's actually There's pretty like, shocking. Have you um have you seen like the LA County Jail that's on the? I'm pretty sure it's on like the 10 freeway. It's either no. on the 10 or the 405. Like right as the exit where you get off to go into Hollywood. Oh yeah. There's just this enormous prison, and really? it's just like right downtown LA huge no. prison no I've never seen like it a, a I've seen I'm sure film. I'm sure I've seen it in films or something like that or documentaries but I've not I've not seen I it I lived physically. there for years bef- before I realised that was a prison really and then it was very startling to re- to actually realise <laughs> what did you think it was all the barbed wire and stuff well it was just nah but it's not barbed wire it not? it's a high rise building but there's just the, the windows uh, they've just got like bars across the windows but it just doesn't look really? out of place at all I think from a certain angle you can see like some barbed wire fencing around the roof they've got yeah. like helipads and I think that's how I ended up noticing it was like a, a, a LAPD heli yeah. landed on the top of it and then I could see it but it's like that's the it was so crazy to just see like there's all big businesses there's like mm. a cisco office and there's like at&t and then yeah big old prison just massive thing you're just like damn and then you i mean there's so many other issues around it but it's just like yeah to be the the country that is the free leader of the free world yeah to have the most people incarcerated yeah. seems like it's quite uh, contradictory yeah you think so mm. yeah what science stuff you said you like reading science books what is a go-to science book for you um Stephen Hawking's Brief History of Time is really, really good. Oh, I haven't um, read that one yet. It's it's not too long. I think it's only about two hundred pages, so mm-hmm. you can you can sit down in a couple of sittings and get through it pretty pretty quickly. But to get a relatively basic understanding about some really complex issues around uh, time and matter and mass and so on and gravity. Um, I found that really, really helpful. Um, another one, which was by a guy called Professor Brian Cox, was called E equals MC squared, or Y equals MC squared, which again explains Einstein's theory of relativity, how that works with uh, with light, light speed, uh, mass, and gravity, how they all interact together, and how space and time are a fabric fabric woven into each other, and anything with mass or gravity, which is um, a, a result of mass. Um, uh, how it can how it can be manipulated and changed, and how it's uh, and how uh, and ultimately you know you end up getting things like black holes and supermassive black holes, and how stars are formed, and you know and then they collapse, they uh, in supernovas and become uh, white dwarfs or neutrino or neutron stars or or and uh, or black holes and so on, like how those all those mechanisms work, but also the, the really relatively basic science behind it, and I use mm. basic really carefully because it's not yeah <laughs> i'm going to show my uh, but it's my basic here. principles that when extrapolated Correct. give you these extreme phenomena exactly right and i thought that was a really so brief history of time is a really good one because it's um it does a really good job of explaining in relatively simple terms really complex issues which i think mm. is a bit of an art because science is an incredibly complex topic and one of the reasons why science is distrusted and there's a lot of anti-intellectualism out there in the world and there's a lot of people who distrust science or um, and that then mitigates itself into a whole bunch of different areas but um, the the ultimate thing with 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 being able to try and uh, bridge that gap is to try and make science more approachable mm. um, and uh, I, I've got a lot of I've got a lot of time for scientific writers and scientific documentaries that 
uh, are clever enough to explain really complex things in a really simple way. Um, and I'll give you one example, which is uh, how light speed works. So light speed is a really complicated issue, really complicated topic. And when someone says, you know, the universal speed limit is light, you can't travel faster than light. You sit there and say, well, why? It doesn't make any sense. Like, why can't things travel faster than light? It seems like such a strange you know, mm. concept. Um, but when you understand how light and then time works and how gravity works, and then you understand how space and time are interlinked together, and you understand that as you end up um, using the laws of relativity and so on, um, and you end up uh, going faster, you end up being faster relative to something else. Yeah. And so when you end up, uh, and I'll give you an example, if you want to, and the way that they describe it is you want to train. And so they imagine that the train you're on is going at 99.999 recurring the speed of light. So it's not at the speed of light, because theoretically at the speed of light, you would time would stand still. And if you got over the speed of light, if you could, which you can't, time would theoretically go backwards I yeah. think I'm going to have a physicist who listens to this and says you're fucking wrong Walking there are no physicists <laughs> well, there might be now um, but the idea is if you're on that train you're travelling at essentially the speed of light and if you were to stand up and then take a step forward you relative to the train which is already travelling at the speed of light would essentially be going faster than the speed of light so what happens is that the speed of light relative to everything else in the universe, you're then the fastest object. Mm. So you then become the speed of light and the train essentially slows down relative to you, mm. if that makes yes. any sense whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. And then when you understand that concept about relativity and relativity in time, um, it opens up this incredible uh, discussion, which is how time is essentially uh, you know, interwoven with this fabric in the universe, but every single different point experiences time at a different rate relative to everything else. And so even even if you have things like and like uh, the way that time travel works, you can't go back in time, but you can slow down time for yourself comparatively to relative so, to everything else. Yeah, so yeah. you can't go and get in a time machine, but what you can do, and this is the example that I've used several times, is um, is if you go on a spaceship and you travel 10 years at the speed of light, turn around, travel 10 years back, you'd have aged 20 years. But on Earth, everyone else would have aged about 100 because yeah. relative to you, the faster you go, the less you age relative to everything else. And it sounds, you know, that just sounds like science, science fiction bullshit, but it's something which is proven it's countless times. It's constantly with, like we, you said, we do it the whole time. equations. We've got, you know, atomic clocks that are on the International Space Station, we've got, which is traveling at 23,000 uh, miles an hour. And then you've got the same nuclear clock on Earth. And when they come back together, you find out that the one that's been in space is now slower. Mm. It's aged less than the, than the atomic clock below, the clock b uh, below on Earth. But then you've got another example, which is like the Large Hadron Collider, which is the largest particle accelerator in, in the world in CERN. Um, you know, we, we're dealing with that effect of speed of light and, and uh, velocity relative to everything else, slowing down time um, the whole time. If they didn't do that, the whole thing wouldn't fucking work because yeah. when they end up uh, accelerating particles to 99.999% the speed of light in the, par in the particle accelerator, you'll have uh, uh, particles, atomic particles that decay and you know that the decay rate in a stagnant you know, uh, test. If you just create them and have them in a bowl, for example, measure they measure and they yeah. die at five minutes, and then they're gone. They're out of existence, or they've become something else. Yeah. When you put them in the accelerator, they'll last for you know hours and hours, for example, because of the speed they're going relative. So again, all this stuff is proven, but yeah. it's so. And when you understand that, again, I think it goes a little bit. We keep talking about perspective, but when you understand all these big complex issues and the people simplify them and, and you and you start to understand them it gives you a perspective on things which is you know far more uh, valuable in my opinion than than uh, a lot of the stuff that we get fed day to day mm. because 
these are interesting concepts and if more people spend more time understanding all this sort of stuff for your daily life way more <laughs> but honestly they are way more than you would normally think yeah i think so too i um but they're just people don't value them or because all because i think a lot of the time to teach it is hard because it's to try and teach it in a way that's simple enough that you can grasp yeah. it once you've grasped it then you can then extrapolate it and learn the more detail yeah i think one of the biggest issues is that it's so intimidating for people when they don't understand it people don't yeah. like people don't really like not understanding things and it's easier just to say i don't like it or i don't trust it yeah and that's what creates a lot of the anti-science and anti-intellectualism rhetoric that you see uh today I have uh, I have done the bulk of my reading over the last I'd say ten years has been yeah. around more like psychology yeah. and philosophy yeah and I've just went I've pretty much gone like extremely deep into that and then that's led me into like uh, Eastern philosophy mm-hmm. and um, meditation and yeah. then then believe it or not after two years of reading that I've gone back to science yeah because so much in science and that's why I wanted to ask you about mm-hmm. what you're reading because I'm, I've got a list of books now that I've just bought off Amazon I think I yeah. ordered 13 books the other day that were all in this vein and it's because you get super deep into uh, some of like the complex theories of, of mm-hmm. meditation and human mm-hmm. consciousness which is it's it's really cool because there's like a direct middle ground between eastern mysticism and then cutting edge neuroscience mm-hmm. they they're talking about the same things in mm-hmm. terms of what we don't know about yeah. consciousness they kind of end in the same spot but then you know to to learn things as simple as there's no such thing as color mm-hmm. in the real world we actually perceive color due to receptors that we have on the back of our eyes Mm. and that creates for our brain a projection of color Mm. and even the fact that essentially your brain is just a a, an organ in a vat Mm. we've none of us have ever actually experienced the outside world our eyes have delivered us signals Mm -hmm. that have then been interpreted by the brain and then our consciousness creates this projection of what we call reality Mm. but the reality that we see isn't an objective reality Mm. it's just one that is measured by the organ the sense organs that we've been given so then to get into science like that's such a useful way to use science like to to basically what and what that does to me to talk about perspective again is just to say well what i call real really isn't even real Hmm. and there's no way of experiencing what i'm so like i say i'm so sure about but isn't that quite humbling though isn't that one of the great things about science is that it actually humbles you instead of you thinking you know all the answers and you know everything is right it actually gives you a much broader understanding on what's going on and the more you learn first of all the you know the more you learn the more stupid the more you realize how stupid you were yeah um you know it's always the idiots that are the most sure about things it's always the smartest people i know who are always the most uh the most skeptical and the most um you know the most full of doubt yeah and um, and I think that you know there's there's always a far more beautiful story in the complex reality of things than there is in about the simplified lies about stuff. Yeah. Um, and I think that uh, having a strong education or at least some sort of um, you know interest in in those sort of subjects, whether it's neuroscience, even if it's philosophy or even you know even ancient philosophy and things like that, which um, you know I, I don't read a lot of it, but I'm sure there's some valuable stuff in there as well. It gives you some perspectives on things which are different. But um, 
But uh, I think that that's really, really important. It's something that's so severely lacking now because mm. most people, when they leave school, that's pretty much it for their understanding. And, yeah. you know, let's be and honest. they don't most, do that good of a job. Yeah, they don't do that much of a good of a job. And to, and to be honest, I didn't really start getting into science until my last couple of years of school. And it's only because I had one teacher who was basically said that the school curriculum on physics is dog shit and he just actually in most of our lessons just taught us really interesting things and he's who I sort of ignited my passion in science I was like, actually fuck this is actually genuinely interesting like, yeah. this isn't just you know writing lambda and doing a bunch of equations on a board which just sounds like horrible math which I hated um, you know he was explaining what the math meant which I thought was much more mm. much more beautiful especially for someone like me who's naturally more creative in their mindset um, and much more visual um, you know it made me appreciate things a lot more being able to see what it meant as opposed to just seeing numbers on a board um, but I think most people just see numbers on a board and then they just you know that's it that's their yeah. experience which I don't think is particularly inspiring mm. um, so I can understand why it's wrong but I think that if we can you know, some 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 people manage to do it in the right way and those who embrace that and try to understand it I think are genuinely better for it yeah you, you're so right in saying that there is the the more the more you know the less you know mm -hmm. essentially and you know it is it's i think people are scared off by uh coming to these realizations yeah 100 you know like to, i always now whenever i see the color red i'm like i don't even fucking know what that is i don't mm. and i don't even know if you experience the same color red mm. as i do i definitely know he doesn't mm. he's fucking colorblind <laughs> And it's like, that's it. He's literally does not live in the same reality as I do. Yeah. It's not the same thing. On many levels. <laughs> in so many ways. I love how Sam was like, I'm not getting in on this podcast. All you've done is sort of sit there chirping and chirping. And oh, it's, per it's perfect. <laughs> but there's something that to me, like there's a, um, there's an Indian guru who I don't particularly like uh, a lot of his stuff, mm. but he said something to, that it's funny, you find it's like, I think wisdom is like a collection of insights from a very wide, varied uh, group of sources. Mm -hmm. But he said that he, he found enlightenment as a child. He was one of these kids that just had like a instant uh, enlightenment, just never the same ever again. And he just uh, stared at his desk in school in India and just looked at his desk and he's like, well, it's a desk. And I know it's a desk, mm. but I don't know what it is. Mm. I don't know what it is. I don't know how it got here. And he just got stuck for years of just being, they pulled him out of school. Like he just ceased mm. to function <laughs> in the normal way because he just had this epiphany of like, mm. I don't know what anything is. Yeah. And that was enough for, for this guy to, you know, I guess achieve this enlightened state. And then he slowly come out of that and then went to practice um, Buddhism and things like that. But you know the the fact of just saying i don't know mm. and like genuinely understanding in mm. the the deepest part of whatever you are to understand that you mm. actually don't know anything is enough to enlighten a person yeah and that moves on to existentialism and all sorts of things like that as well right but i mean even the idea of not knowing uh and the perspective and the perspective you have on on what you think you know and what you don't know i'll use an example for the majority of, of human existence, we only knew about um, the Earth, the Moon, and the Sun. Mm. Then we started with you know Galileo. We ended up understanding that the that the stars that were moving in certain different orbits that people thought were celestial bodies or whatever you wanted to call them were actually planets and were part of a solar system. And so that was the 
you know, the breadth of what we thought existence was. Yeah. And then we understood that we're actually in a galaxy with loads of stars, which all those different stars have got, you know, planets, well, a lot of them have got planets around them as well, potentially like our Earth. Um, but it wasn't until, um, who was it? Uh, I think it was Hubble. It was Hubble. Um, ended up realizing that actually uh, one of those stars that looked like a star, actually when you look closer, was actually another galaxy. That was the first time. I think it was the Andromeda galaxy, mm. which is our closest one, which is about twice the size of ours, about 400 billion stars. And he was like, holy shit, that's another galaxy. So that completely then changed our perspective. Could you imagine being that dude? And then you were like, <laughs> we thought we that. thought the whole universe, everything exists in the universe was the 200 billion stars in our galaxy. At that time, we didn't even know it was that many. It was, we thought it was a lot less, but let's, for this discussion, let's say it's that. And then realized that actually our galaxy, which we thought was the only one in the universe, is now one of trillions of galaxies in the universe each one of those galaxies has between 50 billion and and um and uh and and sort of 500 billion stars you know that that massive shift in the importance of the human race um unfortunately it's a, it's a downward scale of importance not yeah, an upward yeah. one but when you understand your perspective in the universe you know dramatically shifting like that it also makes you then think what we were talking about earlier you know we understand we now understand the scale of everything else in our cosmic realm um to a much higher degree than we ever have we now understand our insignificance not just our insignificance as a planet not just in, but if our if our planet's insignificant our race is pretty insignificant and you and i are definitely and then insignificant. the differences between races are but even then, further exactly insignificant. and so again if you if you start understanding science and start getting this it gives you a different perspective on an outlook on everything mm. and it makes you genuinely understand how petty all the shit is that mm. we get angry about every single day and it gives you a much more it gives you much more clarity on what's genuinely important because you know you stop caring about you know Donald Trump or Joe Biden, you stop caring about uh, COVID ruining a year of your life because you know that you know you'll you'll get through it. But even that, you know, it's on a cosmic scale, it's completely insignificant. And so when you call, when you talk about things like I was saying with hope and stuff, being able to try and push the human species mm. further into that cosmic scale so that we're not as insignificant, so that there is more significance and more integration with the scale of the universe. Even that's just from observation, even if it's not talking about moving to other planets and all that sort of thing, even if it's just focus on understanding position, our yeah, position yeah. more, understanding the creation of the universe, understanding what happens at the end of the universe. Are we in a multiverse with loads of different universes all in a big foam of, of, of bubbles, which is a, a hot topic at the moment? Are we in a simulation? You know, you've got, I don't know what the answers are. I'm not saying I do, but... Yeah, I was going to say, that's probably the point. And I think that this is the point where, like, the the, the guru thing gets mm. fucked up and then the science thing gets fucked up. And then, like, there's a... there's <laughs> What's this... Uh, oh, there's one guy at the moment that's around... Fuck, he's doing the podcast tour talking about how... Uh, basically reality is only a construct of consciousness mm -hmm. and he will just defend it so yeah. vehemently and it's just like okay so when you get operated on and you go unconscious what's that does mm -hmm. the re does the surgeon that's cutting into your heart and putting in an artificial valve mm -hmm. and then wakes you up from being unconscious and now you have it like where mm -hmm. did reality go for that to but there's people out there that they make these claims mm -hmm. about like the fundamental nature of reality or the fundamental nature of consciousness like i think that's what maybe deters people in a sense is because if you do if you are interested and if you do want to follow it to the to what we understand then you're just going to find these fucking rogue weirdos that want to make all these yeah claims, you know what i mean you always you always have opportunists who say who say bullshit or use science against it and that's where pseudoscience and, comes from right people pretending that there's like, meditation's the same mm. thing like there's all these fucking kooks out there that do that yeah that, that 
carry on about the all these claims about the nature of everything it's like yeah. i think at some point you've just got to go cool yeah. this is genuinely what exactly. we do understand yeah and i was just gonna say like a follow-up to that then is it seems like you've found a certain level of comfort in that and it does give you a perspective that then lets you live a normal life or like you kind of live from that place of perspective and that that sort of grounds you in a way you know oh i I don't know maybe in a certain degree but i I just i'm just curious so i naturally Mm. just enjoy learning and um, i wish i had this sort of curiosity that i have today when i was younger because Mm. you know i was i was a straight a student in school but i probably would have been i probably would have taken a different course in 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 my education and focused a lot more on things like science instead of things like history and, and and english and languages and so on like i did um but i think i just think that having the more information you have the better a person you should be and I, I've got a pretty simple uh, motto that I heard from um, Neil deGrasse Tyson who's a, a big professor who did the Cosmos series um, recently on, uh, on 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 Fox I think it was and um, he says uh, and I'm paraphrasing to a certain degree but he says uh, there's a really simple way that you can actually live a pretty good life every single day learn something new that you didn't learn yesterday as number one and number two don't be a c- <laughs> And actually, it sounds really simple, but actually if you live your life like that, it's surprised how far you can get. Mm. Because every single time you learn something new, it makes you a better person. Or at least it makes you a more informed person. Yeah. And, you know, it's just probably a good thing not to be a c- isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I should try it sometime. I'm really bad at number two, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, got, I've got to learn something every day, I feel, after being a c- fucking hell yeah no I, th- I think the I think it's the first time I've said that on a podcast as well so that's a nice little win for today I say it a lot on here <laughs> <Do> yeah <laughs> have, how much time have you got, have you got I don't know what time is it what time, how long have we been going for time's at dinner 5:23. house 5.23 oh we got dinner soon don't we huh so we've got another sort of 10-15 minutes I thought we'd be quite good to finish the podcast on the word that would have been sweet no we I'm just can joking. finish the word. <laughs> no, I'm joking. We can, no 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 we can do yeah let's let's well let's get sam to come on and finish off with just that word how do, um, you, how do you get involved with sammy first was it through rockstar yeah it was rockstar so um it was just after my dad died and it was the first event that i went to um essentially as the owner of the race team um with my long blonde dj hair my eyebrow piercing and <laughs> My t-shirt, un- t-shirt unbuttoned, my shirt unbuttoned to my to my stomach and looking like a bit of a twat. And um, and then Sammy was there and he was the only guy that looked equally as stupid as I did. So we bonded. <laughs> <laughs> and we thought, geez, we could be mad. <laughs> we yeah. just become just friends? best friends. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's fucking yeah, I mean, Literally. <laughs> yeah, and um, who else was in there? Adam Bailey was there as well. Adam Bailey was... Uh, was hanging around back in those days as well. As Bailey's been on this podcast, hasn't yeah. he? Yeah, yeah, a couple so, of times. Now. Couple of times. Yeah, he's, um, a yeah, he's a good dude. And so, um, yeah, we just sort of hung out ever since, haven't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Somehow still putting up with each other. What's um, what's your movements from like from now? And uh, what the fuck are you gonna be, bro? I don't know, dude. I've been in <laughs> Victoria and lockdown for a long time. So we did. Heidi and I did the hotel quarantine to get out of Victoria so we could go to the race at Bathurst. Yeah, we then. Um, we then did the two weeks in Byron for sort of isolation in Byron Bay, um, yeah. which wasn't really isolation. It was just one party for two weeks. It was it was pretty mint. Yeah, it was fun. Um, and then we just came, we thought we'd come up here for for a month and just sort of stay here whilst uh, everything sort of ironed itself out in in Victoria. So I'll probably leave in the next couple of days. Yeah. And uh, and head back. Um, and then uh, who knows? I mean, international travel is 
as we just spoke about at the beginning of the podcast, that's pretty much on a hiatus until God knows how long, but probably um, until 2022, unless you have a vaccine. So I'll be putting my hand up pretty quick to get that so I can travel mm. again. Um, but fundamentally, I'm, I'm stuck here at the moment because if I if I leave, I can't come back. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, at some point, my visa will you know have to go and you know and are you on a you, so you're not i'm on, like I'm on visas no no, no I'm, I'm on visas oh, so fuck that. what a nightmare yeah so it's not been it's not been easy but so far to be honest they've been they've been pretty good yeah. um and uh and uh but you know it, at some point you know you just can't keep getting your visas renewed because yeah. at some point you know it's 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 all going to change but fortunately they've been making good exemptions for people like me who've been sort of stuck here and I've, i think they've used the the, the, the phrase covid refugee which sounds that's pretty sounds, sounds yeah pretty um uh, sounds bit, quite uh quite depressing really yeah it does i'm a covid refugee um paul ryan walking short <laughs> I, feel I feel so terrible for him yeah no so do i so do can I. we start a GoFundMe or something like through the, through the podcast yeah ryan's charity um <laughs> But um, yeah, at some point I want to go back because I want to see my cat. I want to go and you know What's see my friends. What's your normal split of time? Six months in Australia, roughly sort of five six months, um, and then sort of normally three months traveling in Japan and India and USA or everywhere else I need to go for work, and then sort of three months sort of back home. Yeah, but it, it changes every year. Like one year I did like something ridiculous. How many flights did I do in one year? Like one hundred and twenty flights in a year or something stupid like that. So sometimes I'm just in the air the whole time and, mm. you know, travel around loads. But on a normal sort of year, travel sort of uh, 50 to 70 flights, um, which is still quite a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and then my, carbon, my carbon footprint's pretty horrific. For, um, <laughs> size 12. Yeah, size 12, yeah. It's um, funny what you said about the using the international travel just to chill. Like, I remember, yeah. I think in the time that I lived in the US, I probably did that flight like 26 or 28 times, I think it was. Yeah. And man, everyone used to be like, oh, how are you feeling about that flight? And I'm yeah, like, I, look forward to I cannot tell you <laughs> yeah. how excited I am to get the fuck away from all of you, <laughs> my phone, and then get the fuck away from all of them that I'm going to. This is going to be an absolute treat. Yeah. But yeah, that, that did go away with the Wi-Fi thing. Yeah, it does. But um, yeah, hopefully by sort of Q1 or Q2 next year, vaccines will be out and we'll be able to travel again and they'll start ramping that up. Um, yeah, because it'd be quite good to be able to get back home at some point. Mm. Um yeah, we've been here for a long time. My mum, my mum was actually with us for a long time as well, um, and she uh, she she left just as lockdown happened and the proper full lockdown happened in Melbourne. So the sort of stage three and then going to stage four, because um, back then it was summer in Europe and COVID was mm. basically gone everywhere and everyone was you know all blasé and happy about it. And then um, yeah, poor her, she was there for three months and now she's in sort of stage three lockdown in, yeah. the, in the UK. So um, she managed to dodge one, but she couldn't she couldn't dodge the second one unfortunately. But um, yeah, it'd be good. Be good to go out to Melbourne soon. Well, I have really enjoyed talking to someone that is way smarter than me. It happens quite a <laughs> lot. But uh, I re- really enjoyed it. And I just figured if we didn't have the full time, probably not going to... We'll go into your backstory the second time you come on. Yeah, yeah. I'll come a, back again. It's a very interesting story. And uh, yeah, super stoked. We've actually never met too, yeah. uh, which people might not... Well, obviously people wouldn't know, but Maddie, my brother, <laughs> knows you super yeah. well. Sammy knows you super well. Everyone tells me how much of a fucking lord you are finally got a chance to meet yeah oh, and uh stuff nice. got to have a chat yeah same here dude thank you very much for having me on board and uh, yeah cheers for sammy for getting me on here when i was trying to find all sorts of ways to uh no i was just because i've been here for a little while and i've got 
like you know when you're sort of here for a couple of weeks and you sort of put off seeing everyone for ages yeah and then it comes to like your last five days and all of a sudden like fuck i've not seen anyone that i actually <laughs> meant to go and see yeah. so we've just been smashing and Haley every five minutes Haley's like you got this to do you got to go and have lunch with this person you got to go and see this person for a meeting you got to go and have dinner with these guys tonight so i was like oh shit and sammy's like you got to go on the podcast i was like, I really want to come on the podcast but i'm getting more and more fully booked it's going to be crazy to uh, to get the time in so I'm glad we managed to get it done though. It's been nah, cool. Really, really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, mate. No worries. Cheers. Perfect. Thanks, Eve. Yeah, thank you. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on Auto Trader. They're really good at numbers. Auto Trader.